Hello, I'm Gideon Spanier, UK Editor-in-Chief of Campaign, and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. And today I'm joined by Campaign Deputy Editor, Gemma Charles, and Work and Inspiration Editor, Imogen Watson. And we're going to be talking about the Cannes Lions Festival, which we've just returned from. So hi, Gemma. Hi, Imogen. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Good. So later on in the podcast, I'm going to speak to the Campaign Against Living Miserably about their new campaign about suicide prevention, The Last Photo. And you'll hear from Simon Gunning, the Chief Executive of Calm, and Will Grundy, Head of Planning at Adam and Eve DDB, about that. A very important topic, and it's a great conversation. But first, we've been in Cannes. So it was the first in-person festival for three years since before the pandemic. So Gemma, how would you describe Cannes Lions 2022? Well, my first observation was that it was very rainy. (laughs) Who would have thought that? Um, You know, I was speaking to people and they were saying in the whole of their sort of living memory of attending Cannes, they didn't really recall it ever raining. So, um, yes, but, you know, people cracked on and I was pleased to see the guys that sold the umbrellas making a quick buck out of of Adland anyway. So that was nice. (laughs) But, um, yeah, um, there was a real sort of sense of joy at being back together. That was what I really picked up, that people were just so pleased to have this big global event back as it used to be. And, you know, while the online ones have been effective and, you know, people have enjoyed them, and last year it was wonderful because obviously AMV, uh, one agency of the um, festival, You know, there was this real sense of being able to be back together and celebrate and network. Um, You know, there's nothing quite like it. And the amount of networking that you can do in that week um, is astonishing. So it was really enjoyable. So Imogen, first time at Cannes for you. Mm. How was Cannes 2022? See, it's my first time worried I brought the rain. <laughs> I'm worried it was my fault. But um, yeah, it was it was an experience to, to say it lightly. Um, and like I say, it's my first one, so it's very difficult for me to compare to past ones. But people kept telling me it was a bit more chilled, which I don't know how raucous it was before, but it seemed pretty mad. But it was it was a very I had a strange moment during the campaign party. Uh, where it felt like I was just looking at my inbox and I've never sort of been in a room with so many people that I'd obviously worked with and admire at the same time. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> so just to give people a picture, because uh, lots of people haven't been to Cannes, you know, it's this seaside town and uh, there's a sort of Palais, which is a festival centre at one end by the harbour. And there's a beachfront, the Croisette, which runs for, well, basically about a mile. And there's around 10,000 people who come to the event. There's events every day, speaker sessions in the Palais during the day. And then in each of these beaches, they uh, if you can imagine, each beach is around 40 to 60 metres wide. Uh, there's a different company takes it over you've got google facebook you've got wpp dentsu all hosting events then in the evening parties and there's some it's a frenzy really from Mm. about nine in the morning Mm -hmm. till way after midnight it's a a draining experience but Mm -hmm. quite stimulating and i think for the three years it's been three years since anyone met in such a big gathering of advertising people so it is stimulating but of course uh, people think about 
the work. Uh, that's what the Lions celebrate each night with different categories. Um, Gemma, was there a dominant theme of Cannes beyond the fact it did rain a bit? <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess you couldn't really get away from uh, the environment and all the issues around that. Um, there were It was a week of um, protests I didn't witness them, but I know some people on the team did. And um, having seen them, I mean, they were, you know, whatever your view on them, they were pretty effective. They were pretty eye-catching. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's what comes across to me uh, to the extent that we're actually going to do a question of the week on the issue. So we're going to sort of be asking. So it was Greenpeace um, were mainly the organisation running the protest. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be asking whether uh, the Greenpeace demand, which is essentially that um, ad agencies stop working with um, fossil fuel clients, we're going to be asking whether these kind of protests will actually affect change. Mm-hmm. Um, now we haven't. We've, we're getting the que- we're getting the answers in from industry people at the moment, and there seems to be a consensus that they won't. Um, stop this but that the protest should continue because they keep the issue very much on the front line and they keep awareness high. So Greenpeace was involved in three different protests. Uh, On the first night uh, someone came on stage during the actual award ceremony in the Palais. Then on the the third day a group of protesters came in kayaks onto the WPP beach um, but via the sea and then on the Thursday morning the Greenpeace got a ladder on a truck and it was, a, I think, a fire truck and they it was about 50 feet high and leaned it against the side of the Palais. So, um, Imogen, I don't know how much of that you saw yourself. Yeah, I was actually going for a meeting at WPP on the beach and I started seeing quite like, you know, you're walking along the Quasette and you're like, and then I started seeing some sort of signs of something kind of amiss, but still at that point you're like, that's odd. And then you walk on and you think, and I saw obviously the protesters like with these sort of wet dog outfits <laughs> and you're like okay it's can <laughs> and you keep going and then I got to the point where I got to WPP and they're like well it's, we're not getting we're, we're, the meetings here and I thought they were joking and I was like oh okay uh but they were like no when the beach is shut off so obviously it's um it was just you saw it present all the time I saw the them posting the posters on the first day it was they were very present and I think that it's becoming a bit of a running theme of Cannes, of which they had Extinction Rebellion a couple of years before. And I just wondering, in sort of going forward, there needs to be a bit more of an interaction between the two rather than one sort of pointing fingers and the other one either turning an eye um, or not really doing anything about it. I think in future, it'd be good to actually for the two to combine and go, well, well, what can we do about this? Yeah, it is interesting. And there's no question that there's a tension at the Mm. heart of the advertising industry that um, I spoke to Mark Reed, who's the CEO of WPP afterwards. And he was essentially saying Greenpeace are right to highlight the problem. But everyone, including the energy companies, what Greenpeace would call some of the fossil fuel companies, need to be part of the solution. That's what Mark Reed's saying. And I guess the question is, is how much latitude should these uh, energy companies be given? Yeah. And we've seen it with Uh, In the past, recent past with Edelman, a lot of agencies, I think the campaigners understand that if I can put it like this, blaming the messenger is quite an effective way to um, push all this up the agenda. And there's no question that 
Uh, advertising and marketing play an important role in a lot of ways in communicating some of the benefits of going to net zero, but also making people feel good about some of the purchases they make now, even though they're not sustainable. I would also say important that VML Y&R Brazil, a WPP agency, helped Greenpeace win gold at the awards <laughs> for uh, something called Los Santos Three mm. Degrees. Which Imagine was, the conversations were a bit awkward after. <laughs> I think possibly they, yeah, I, I suspect that's why Mark Reed is saying that it, Greenpeace is right for yes. their clients. <laughs> but um, uh, Imogen, you saw a lot of the work yeah. and you saw what won. So mm-hmm. anything that emerged from for you about the, the, the work that was doing well at Cannes? Yeah. So just to say before that, I think in terms of the, when I was looking at it from the sustainability point of view of the awards, um, obviously there's its own section, um, the sustainable development goals area, but I wonder in future whether it'll get to a point where can you win an award if you have not thought about sort of sustainability within your credentials? So, you know, if a, if a campaign has caused waste, will that win anything? I think it's quite interesting to think whether it'll happen in the next can or going forward. Keeping those separate might be an interesting way to look. But in terms of the actual work, the work that stood out for me was Long Live the Prince, uh, which was by Engine Creative for EA Sports. And it was uh, a work to raise funds for the Kean Prince Foundation. I remember when Kean Prince came out and I remember thinking, oh my word, <laughs> this is this is something now. And I knew it was going to be big because it feels like one of those campaigns where someone had an idea and everyone else went, we're not going to be able to do that. There's no way we're going to be able to do that. It seems too mad. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, um, basically Kean Prince was a, a, a young footballer who was stabbed outside their school and never got the chance to become the footballer that they, they would have become. And they had the idea to, therefore, you know, talking about knife crime is very difficult. Uh, I think that people have tried, it's getting worse, which is another terrible part about it. But I think people try in different ways of trying to to, to get to young people. And where are young people mostly going to be present on, on FIFA? And I think it took two years in the making, but they actually managed to get him as a character on the game. And I know from talking to Engine, that, uh, yeah, it wasn't an easy ride. And there was many times where they went, well, this is the end of it, we'll give up. So I think to praise work like that, which is, you know, such an amazing piece, so different, um, really well-deserved. So Guillaume Prince was a great piece of work. Anything else that stood out for you for British or around the world? I mean, superhumans, I've always got a sort of love for, and it feels like I was talking to Gemma about it earlier, and I kind of likened it to The Godfather um, in the sense that, in no other way other than the fact it's a trilogy before I get ahead of myself uh, but in the sense that every time it comes out and it smashes out the, out the ballpark is that the phrase uh, you're always so happy and so amazed and you know it's it's great to see but it's one of those things where can they pull it out again you know another, another one a fourth one would it be the same um, so I'm intrigued to see but it's always great to see them sort of carry on that very interesting insight and then build on it each time yeah so there, I think Channel 4, interestingly, it's an in-house agency for creative. Mm. And the fact that for the Paralympics, they've really continued yeah. to keep pushing the bar has been great. And uh, it's a tribute, I think, to their commitment. Uh, they are using the power of film because that's what won the Grand Prix for, mm. the power of film to communicate something which is still super, super important. And we've seen actually Channel 4 separately come out with a report this week about the low representation of disabled people in uh, television mm. in the UK. So 
there's more work to be done. It's a great that, in my opinion, it just got recognition for what's a beautiful mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. And it goes beyond just the film because obviously Channel 4 has played such an important part in elevating the Paralympics. Um, I can imagine not that long ago it would have just been seen as sort of, oh, the Olympics is over if you want to continue watching it. But they've really managed to make it feel that it's as worthy to watch as, as the Olympics, which is amazing to see. Yeah, it's a po- possibly one of the greatest legacies of London 2012, mm. I think. Yeah. When I think about how they've sustained that. Right, Gemma, will you just give us a tally for the UK and overall how UK brands and agencies did? Okay, so the UK got five Grand Prix. Uh, so AMV BBDO picked up two for Hope Reef, uh, one in the media category and another in industry craft. Um, on the same day, actually, RGA London picked up their Grand Prix for Nike Sync. So that was in entertainment in the sport. That's a menstrual app that helps you sort of um, track your menstrual cycle and helps you uh, make a tailored um, training program. And then for creative, of course, as we've been talking about, uh, got its Grand Prix in film for Superhuman. And then the last one was Engine Creative, for Long Live the Prince, uh, they got the Titanium Grand Prix. Well, I will say it's extremely hard to win a can line. There were over <laughs> 25,000 entries. Mm. It was down 18% the number of entries on 2019. But mm. when you think about the sort of challenges of the last couple of years, actually the number of entries was not that far behind the previous year, which was two years combined. The Feedback I got from a number of the judges who were on the juries was how much they enjoyed the face-to-face judging and it was really interesting. There was some discussion about whether the work was as, as good. Maybe it wasn't a vintage year. At the same time, there was this sense that it was really stimulating to be together. So Imogen, overall, how would you rate the work that won? And I know there's quite a lot of talk about purpose yeah so there was a definite feel that purpose was a large part of the awards that were won um and that's why i quite enjoyed seeing the underdogs do well the underdogs is a series that apple's been working on for a few years now by director mark malloy um and i just i love them (laughs) it's not often there the latest one was eight minutes 50 and it's not often i watch an ad again and again and again and again, unless, you know, I'm writing about it and I have to, but it's so entertaining. It feels like it defies all the laws of good advertising because eight minutes, 50 seconds of Apple product after Apple product, you know, you would get a bit dulled out by it, but they just smash it in terms of, of just this fun narrative, the storytelling aspect of it. Um, it was just cool to see sort of something a bit beyond, you know, I won't, I won't say sanctimonious, but, you know, it's like there was a lot of purpose and it was cool to see some actual real pure good advertising with humour injected into it. Well, thanks for the roundup. And I think just for the record, we should say that Dentsu Creative Bengaluru won mm. Agency of the Year. Mm-hmm. Uh, first time an agency from India mm-hmm. had won Agency of the Year. And you know they, that, w- that was because they did really well with Vice Media's The Unfiltered yeah. History Tour, which is yeah. an unofficial guide to the British Museum, which gives vis- visitors an immersive tour of the museum's disputed artefacts, their origins and how they were obtained. So a mm-hmm. uh, little bit of a British angle there. 
That was for Vice Media. And I would just add Dentsu's decision to merge all their agent, creative yeah. agencies together to create Dentsu Creative kind of paid off. Mm-hmm. They did that on the Monday. By the Friday night, they were had Agency of the Year. Uh, Ogilvy won the Network of the Year. And I'd add on that, again, interesting, Ogilvy Mumbai won uh, a Titanium. And that was for Cadbury. And again, showing that India is a bit of a sort of uh, force in the mm. advertising industry. Yeah. And again, I think 30% up, more than 30% up entries from India. So although entries were down globally at Cannes, India's been expanding. WPP was the most creative company. Uh, as well as the most invaded beach. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was an interesting can. I think what Gemma said at the start, sustainability is really on the agenda for campaign, for every company that attends. You've got to think, why are we flying here? Or in some cases, like the Advertising Association, taking the train. Uh, on stage, there was uh, it was announced that AdNet Zero is the UK initiative is expanding in America and Europe and sustainability is absolutely high on the agenda, mm-hmm. should be. And look forward to Cannes next year. I'm going to say one more word about campaign. We did have our party on the Wednesday evening. It was great to do it. We had our editors and journalists from Campaign US, from Asia, Campaign India, Campaign Middle East, Campaign Turkey there. And it was really great to be together. It was the first time in some cases we'd met our colleagues because they joined, you know, at some point during the pandemic and other people like Imogen had joined us in the UK. So we had a theme of campaign for creativity that as a brand globally, we're all these different websites, but we're united by this commitment to creativity and really glad that we got to be there. Yeah, it's good yeah. to see the Mac there as well. There was a nice sort of wall with all the magazines with the with the Bored Ape creative at the front. Mm. Yeah. A lot of people actually um, highlighted that to me, how much they like that that board with the covers mm. on. Yeah, this is a um, kind of what do you call it? A sort of step and repeat thing where you can go and set up, get, get your photo taken yeah. uh, at the party. So we had about 600 people at the Carlton Beach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I've got to say to Gemma and Imogen, thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. <laughs> so now we're going to go and talk to the campaign against living miserably, Calm. And I'm pleased to say that Simon Gunning, the chief executive of Calm, is here, along with Will Grundy, head of planning at Adam and Eve DDB, which works with Calm. So welcome to you both. Thank you very much. And the reason we're here is that Calm has got a new campaign out and it's called The Last Photo, Suicidal Doesn't Always Look Suicidal. So the idea is that Calm is using the last photos and videos of people who've taken their life as part of a campaign that aims to dismantle a misunderstanding of what suicidal looks like. And this work by Adam and Eve DDB is the biggest campaign from Calm to date and aims to equip the nation with tips on how to have difficult conversations with their peers. So the last photo launched earlier this month as an unbranded exhibition on London's South Bank with 50 six and a half feet high smiling portraits showing people living a carefree life. But on the 22nd of June last week, it was revealed that the happy image is in fact the last picture of the person before they took their own life. And there's a film uh, which we'll hear an extract from now. 
happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, and you really want to show it, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Bring me sunshine in your smile. Bring me laughter all the while. In this world where we live, there should be more happiness. So much joy you can give to each brand new bright tomorrow. What are you going to do today? I would go run around in my shoes. Right, so Simon and Will, um, it's a very moving film. And to explain, it shows a number of people, mainly men and a woman, and they're apparently look, sound looking, sounding happy. Uh, so Simon, uh, as CEO of Calm, tell us a little bit about this new campaign and I guess why it matters so much. Um, yeah, so it, it, it matters because we know completely that talking about suicide is a directly preventative measure. So we, we, we think of it in terms of the suicide being stigmatized and, and shameful uh, and, and liking the, 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 the dark corners. If we don't talk about it, it becomes an option and uh, that, that option can become real. Um, but we know absolutely from our clinical advisors that getting out in the open and confronting it is a directly preventative measure. So that was kind of the insight. We, there were, you, you see quite a number of campaigns or pieces of work where people talk about spotting the signs. And actually, I think the, the first conversations we had were about that kind of principle, but then we went, no, that's not going to work because for so many people, there are there are no signs to spot. So that was kind of the that was sort of the brief to Adam and Eve. I think really that was the the nub of it. Yeah, it was kind of you know when you actually dig into suicide and you and you dig into the way that families and friends who have been you know who have lost loved ones to suicide when they talk about it, the thing that you always hear is. We never saw it coming, and so there's this kind of there's this perverse tension, wasn't there, where we were kind of starting by thinking like, what are the signs? How do we educate people around what to look out for? How do we make people more vigilant? But I think we had this realization quite quickly was that actually that's looking at the issue through the wrong end of the telescope. There aren't these signs; it's invisible, it's hidden away, and actually the only mass preventative measure to prevent suicide is being much more open as individuals and as a society in talking about it as part of almost what makes us human um, and normalizing it in a way that we have singularly failed to do. Because it is normal. So there's 125 a week. Um, and There's 125 people a week taking their own lives yeah, in the yeah. UK. Yeah, 18 a day. And, and since we did uh, Project 84, 26,000 people have died. Um, and, and we're squeamish. I'm a, I'm a middle-aged man and I have a little tiny handbrake comes on every time I get to that word, even though I do this for a, for a living. But when you see the faces, and this is, I think, the evolution from 84, where we covered their faces on the, the statues because we wanted to talk about the number. With this, we wanted to talk about the humanity. Yeah. And just um, although uh, quite a lot of our listeners will remember, so Project 84 was in 2018. Yep. And there were 84 statues which um, were unidentifiable 
people. From the outside, they yes. were all made by the families themselves mm-hmm. with Mark Jenkins, the artist, and they were signed uh, with messages written onto them. And then they were sealed inside the clothes with their hoodies sealed with super glue so that they became anonymous. And that was all about the number. This was all about the, the humanity because whilst we, we're, we're as long as we worry about talking about suicide, it's somebody else that it's happening to. When you look into the eyes of those portraits and you watch the film, that's our, our mums, dads, brothers, sisters, friends, wives, husbands, and it's us. So to Will's point about making it part of humanity, it is part of humanity. It's a human trait. Um, and, we, and, and, and that's what we wanted to do was make it very clear that this isn't other people, this is us. And Will, just when you think about the, maybe the the insights which mm. uh, Simon is, is talking about. You've gone from this point now where you've got clearly identified people. It feels um, just real because it is real. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about what the the sort of the the planning in in how you reach this point, saying you need to. It's important to identify people. So I think there. It's interesting actually when we were doing the planning. The thing that we found actually, you know, kind of suicide is rarely talked about and it's only often talked about culturally when there are kind of high profile suicides, right? The, the tragic suicide of Gary Speed or Caroline Flack or Robin Williams in the United States. And the thing that we started noticing when we were working on the brief was that whenever people spoke about those in the aftermath of the suicide, it was always accompanied by a smiling photo. You know, and, and it was always a kind of, this was the person that we knew. And actually, I wish that I'd known that behind that smile, something was was happening. I wish I could have intervened, but I didn't. And so the thought that we started working with uh, and the kind of the insight that we had that I think informed the campaign was you know, it, very, very simple, is that suicide hides behind a smile. And the only way that we can prick that is by talking about it, by saying that this is what suicide actually looks like. If you go onto Google Photos, That's right? the perverse thing, isn't it? Yeah. We think we know what it looks like. And it, and it absolutely doesn't. And interestingly, you know, kind of you think back to 84, amazing kind of campaign that it was, but 84 was a victim of that. You know, we showed suicidal statues on top of a building. We played into that big cultural trope of what suicide looks like. You Google suicidal person on, on Google Images and you see people with their heads in their hands. You see people looking desolate, looking sad. That's not what it looks like. Um, and pricking that, bursting that, revealing what is true about it was, was where we started. And that's what led to the last photo. And the more we kind of spoke to people, the more we spoke to families and friends, the more true and universal we found that kind of story to be. Everyone had this kind of one last recollection, this one last photo, this one last clip of that loved one. And people would look at it with this bittersweet, heartbreaking kind of sense of look at how happy they were just before. And I think we just, we wanted to use that to really, really create a new conversation around suicide and how it's perceived both rightly and wrongly. I I think shame is a very close cousin to guilt. And for lots of bereaved people, they they feel guilt because they didn't, I'm doing bunny ears now, they didn't spot the signs. Um, And and the insight is that they're, they're, so we we, we deal probably more with suicide as a social issue at CALM than as a a, a mental health issue. That's probably what we do. We're not, we're non-clinical. and I think the confusion in the in the the, the the mind of the general public is that it's a mental health issue that, that you can see because people will be you know dirty, they will lose their jobs. So, and yes, that is 
the case that it is often a mental health issue, but more than half of the people that die by suicide haven't presented for formal mental health care. Um, and so we wanted to confront this social issue, which which is, the, the, I think, the great insight from, from Adam and Eve, which is that culturally we propagate this misunderstanding yeah. and it kind of allows us to to free ourselves of of guilt it allows us yeah. to but although of course that backfires but it allows us to free ourselves from the burden of trying to confront it yeah i want to make sure that at the end we give people direction about where they can find out more information but in terms of the uni we even though you if you like issue a caveat around mental health when we think about the last two plus years of the pandemic we think about where now in a cost of living crisis um simon to what extent is this having an effect do you do you have uh, any numbers that sort of demonstrate this has been taking an additional you know putting additional pressure on people absolutely so um since project 84 there's been an 11 just over 11 and a half percent rise in, in the suicide rate um actually lockdown didn't make that any particularly worse um but what we know is and this was another key insight why we, why we had to go out now um, with a direct preventative campaign uh, is that we look back to 2008 and the financial crash. Um, that was the last time we saw a huge jump in, in suicide, especially amongst men 45 plus. So what we we know that there is a potential correlation between economic hardship mm. and suicide. And we, we don't have to really think about that too hard as to why that, that's the case. So what we really want to do is be front footed mm. and get a preve- get preventative before we may start to see those numbers change. And on your website, uh, I think it says about three quarters of suicides are, are men. Yeah. And uh, also there's issues around inclusion in terms of people from uh, certain ethnic backgrounds, yeah. um, LGBTQ plus Very much. Are, are more at risk, I yeah. suppose, if that's the right word. It is exactly the right word, yeah. So we we, we, we target at-risk at audiences and we do that through campaigns like the stuff that we do with Adam and Eve, but we also do that through our brand partnerships. So we kind of, we appropriate other people's audiences uh, and, and deliver helpful messages to them sometimes. In the past, we've, we've, we've quite often not been overtly about suicide. So, for example, working with Topshop and Top Man uh, through with, with, with Havas. Sorry, Will. That's all right. <laughs> I've got something I need to tell you. Um, we were talking there about happiness to that audience. I think actually our, our positioning now is we, we are relentlessly about suicide. And I think that has been a really important evolution from 84 to the last photo, right? 84 is about the number of men who died by suicide every single week. The last photo, you know, you can see it in the film that you've just shown. You can see it in the portraits. Yes, there is a a heavy kind of male presence in that because three in four suicides in this country are still male. Um, but we know, for example, young girls are the highest kind of rising group in terms of in suicide ideation. You know, yeah. We as a suicide prevention organization need to ensure that we are getting our message out to all of those audiences and not just framing it as a as a gendered issue and, and the, the clues in the name so the campaign against living miserably yeah. isn't it, it's not the, the campaign against people that die from attempting suicide it's the campaign against living miserably and actually attempts from uh 
to, to, to be very binary about it, from, from male and female are pretty much the same. It's just that male attempts are three times more likely to lead to mm-hmm. conclusion. Um, and so in trying to address, as you say, that 10 to 24 audience of, of all genders, um, we, that's a really important piece of work. And 84 actually made us completely gender inclusive because it increased our reach so much. But we were kind of, we were very deliberate in the way that we actually deployed the last photo. So for example, when we did our big launch uh, last week on Wednesday, very deliberately, we had Jamie Lang and we had Amber Rose from Love Island coming down and talking about suicide to their audiences. Because whilst necessarily we've kind of planned it to deliver mass reach, mass conversation, we're also being really specific about audiences that we target so that that message can get out in an authentic and credible way to the groups for whom it is even more important for it to be a conversation that's had. Yeah. Okay. Raises lots of interesting questions. So um, we're here on an advertising podcast and I think of what Calm has done when partnering with media owners, particularly ITV, when you talk about reach, mm. um, you've got a lot of earned media coverage, I would say, um, but you clearly believe in the role of paid media, paid advertising. Yeah. And um, for each of you, maybe starting with Simon, wh- why paid advertising? Um, to, to be able to plan, um, we, we are we're at the risk of tooting one's own horn. We, we, we are very successful at, at earned, um, but you know, there's you, you've got to get the, the wind right, and you've got to get all the circumstances to line up, and then and then off we go. And you have to have a pretty bloody clever idea from Adam and Eve or, or whoever we're working with. Um, but paid, we we we, ha- we haven't spent huge amounts of money. We we did a campaign uh, called the Invisible Opponent um, with uh, AMV and uh, Seven Stones, and we we went out with paid media on ITV for that. Um, that was the one with Tyson Fury. That's the Tyson Fury one, yeah, um, which was really really successful for us. And actually, back to that audience, but in, in reaching older men with our partnership with Carling as well, we can reach those uh, slightly lower demographic uh, socio demographic groupings. Um, but yeah, to, to be able to plan, but we 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 are a charity, and um, it's it's hard for us to be able to spend lots of money above the line because we have a fundamental responsibility to be spending that on on services like our helpline. Um, but yeah, to be paid media is is very important and will briefly yeah first off it's about what the objective of this campaign is trying to achieve right we're trying to achieve conversation we're trying to get people en masse to talk about suicide not just once but in an ongoing way and so there is a, a crucial role for a paid component to continue to pick up on the momentum and fuel those conversations in the long term so it's about kind of supercharging the effectiveness of that idea we always start whenever we're working with calm we always start with what the headline is because we recognize that actually that's the way to really really create something spiky that exists in culture but i think what we've learned you know particularly looking back at project 84 that was an amazing kind of earned campaign right it created a huge amount of conversation but we didn't necessarily we weren't necessarily able to sustain it in the way that we're fortunate enough to be able to do with the last photo. And I think it's probably worth calling out on the podcast because I'm sure lots of people are listening. We're very, very lucky to have had an amazing number of people like JC Decoe and ITV who have bought into the importance of the idea and the brilliance of the that's execution that's really, yeah. and said, we will put, you know, we, the, that 90 that you showed is in 700 odd cinema listings and it's because people believe in the importance of it so we're really really lucky to benefit from a paid component that other charities 
might not necessarily enjoy. Totally. And when we put those media partnerships together painstakingly over the years, but then also our agency relationships. So the seven stars uh, work for us completely pro bono. So Liam Mullins and, and Chris Guilfoy and, and, and their teams have got what looks like paid media. We, our, our print was amazing last week. Cinema and then JC Deco, we're, we're all over the country with it, as we were with Stay and others as well. So sometimes it looks like we're paying them, we're actually not because it's the goodwill of, of great people that want to work with us. But it's still about context as well. Absolutely. And yeah. um, I want to ask Simon as well, you know, when we think about how um, all of us consume media, online platforms are very important. And there can be times when you're looking at something and it, you get a recommendation to look at something else. Yeah. Uh, another video, another piece of content. Some of these algorithms are actually incredibly powerful. Yeah. Uh, is there anything to say about the responsibility of media owners, media platforms, anything that Com has been pushing for, asking for? And I'm asking really because of the advertising industry. Um, I've, I've been long, long interested in uh, delivering content programmatically um, and so that we can have some sort of control over the or we can have an algorithm which would deliver helpful content. Um, Right now, really, Google just provides the one box and that's it. And that just says, call the Samaritans. And clearly, calling Samaritans isn't right for everybody. So we are, with what we're doing uh, with the last photo, clearly the, the, the keywords that are showing up are, are potentially going to be going down difficult paths where if we're just having the algorithm do, do its thing. But actually, that's worked very well for us. If we're just looking through the social media platforms where we've been incredibly successful with this. So the most shared video on Reddit, yeah. uh, LinkedIn's gone crazy, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, as you can imagine, it's a very visual campaign. In fact, what we're seeing is that the thousands of comments are people joining in with the conversation, which was precisely the objective. Um, but we have done a lot of work with media owners. We work extensively with ITV2, with Dave, lots of radio, lots of print to, to help them create the right kind of content, which isn't going to push people into directions which could be tricky. But with the key objective to be to talk about suicide, it certainly worked. With um, Project 84, I believe that led to the appointment of a, a minister with suicide prevention in the brief. Yep. And, and the title. And the title. And uh, was that Nandine Dorries? <laughs> it was, uh, well, she was the second uh, incumbent. But for a time now, there's, there is no one with that um, brief or at no. least in their title, suicide no. prevention. Um, um, you, yeah, I guess the question would be, is there something you'd like government to be doing more of? Yeah. So they made a, they made a pledge to reduce suicide by 10%. Um, and then they put Nadine Dorries in, in, in post and um, that didn't happen. But as mentioned, the rate has actually risen by 11% over that time. Um, Julian Keegan now has the role, but as uh, we had lots of conversations with Theresa May's spads and with Theresa May as well, we wrote the job description at Calm for the, for the, for the role with those special advisors. With the appointment of Gillian Keegan under the current administration, suicide prevention has quietly slipped away. Um, I think actually they, there was uh, Javid's speech last week was very helpful that he... This is Javid, the health secretary. Absolutely. And, and talked for the first time about his brother. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, these things, we, and we did an amazing thing in Parliament about a month ago when, uh, bizarrely, my all-time heroes, I was on a panel with New Order um, and Andy Burnham, 
talking about the death of Ian Curtis and what hasn't changed in that time and what has changed. Um, and to be in the Speaker's House in the Palace of Westminster and have 200 MPs talking about this subject was an incredible step forward. The Speaker, uh, Lindsay Hoyle, spoke about the loss of his daughter, which was just devastatingly moving. So you can see progress. But why would you remove the title? Why would you drop that? What makes you think, well, we'll get rid of that? Is it is it stigma? Is it shame? Did they, did they not want to have that in there because they found it embarrassing? I don't understand the motivation to say it's no longer important enough to be in the in the title, and I'd like to know why that is. So I guess kind of watch this space really. I think also ju- just to put it in perspective, when the Minister for Suicide Prevention was announced, I think we were all rightly incredibly buoyed, uh, incredibly proud as well that we had kind of, you know, we'd really agitated for that. Well, we, the petition had, well, I don't know, 100, 200,000? 350,000 signatures by yeah. the end of it. But I think the reason why I want to call it out is, so between 2018 and 2021, um, when the minister's remit was kind of most substantial, the funding available to the minister was around uh, 5 million or some, something like that over the course of the three years. Just to put that in perspective, the London School of Economics estimates that one suicide costs uh, the UK economy £1.25 million lifetime. So that amount of money is is gets you to Wednesday. Public Health England say £1.68 Right. So, so it, the reason I bring that up is not to diminish the, the enthusiasm uh, or the intention of the minister, but it's to illustrate that there needs to be a much bigger kind of cultural sea change in the way that we prevent suicide. And to bring it back to the last photo, that's why talking and conversation is so important. Because I think as much as we would love there to be a minister with a bottom, a magic money tree to use kind of different terms that have been used before. They do exist. um, Not for us. But that's never going to be the answer. The answer on a more fundamental level is a society that is comfortable talking about suicide, talking about the fact that one in five of us have suicidal thoughts in our lifetimes. You know, kind of talk about the fact that actually this as an issue, as devastating as it is, is much closer to home than we realise and than we choose to admit. And if organisations like Calm and campaigns like The Last Photo can begin to turn that, that's when proper change is going to happen in the long term. It is. And and, and I'm not sure if I mentioned it before, but we we come at it as a social issue. Fortunately, we we are joined by amazing colleagues at Mind and Samaritans, for example, who treat it as a as a mental health issue and so if you if you can take that 1.68 let's say 1.5 million because that's mm-hmm. between the two numbers but multiply that by six and a half thousand every year you're looking at 12 billion a year in cost to to, to the, the country um so clearly the the primary objective has to be to fund the nhs properly right? it's just obvious um and take some of that cost and and, and, and reapply it into mental health care our approach however as as, as will is saying is to is to uh, attack it on a societal level on a cultural level um and to use modern, more modern forms of communication, techniques and tricks, culture to enable people to seek help and to provide help and to change their behaviours. All right. Um, so a last thing, uh, for anyone who's listening, they might be uh, worried for themselves or someone they know, um, what should they do and you know, where's the best places to, to, to take next steps? Well, hopefully, the, the the work that we've done with the last photo and the, the supporting materials that we've made with, uh, but by ourselves and with Adam and Eve, uh, 
are good. I hope they are. Um, so go to the Campaign Against Living Miserably's website, and there, that that's we, we'll talk you through step by step how to begin a conversation with around saying around the dinner table in the pub, at the football, at work, at school, um, and, and we can we can help you take that very difficult step because we are very much aware of the stigma and the shame and the embarrassment. Um, so come and have a look at that stuff. Uh, our helpline is open from five to midnight, seven days a week. Um, and we're there for anybody. We have we're, we have paid, trained professional people at the end of the phone. Um, not that volunteers are in any way bad, but we have a different approach to it. So we can help people there. And then and, and definitely you know, seek help from your GP if you feel that you need it. Okay. And what's the website URL and the phone number. Yep, it is thecalmzone.net and the phone number is 0800 58 And last thing, people can um, donate as well? That would be really, really good. Yeah, we the, the cost of living crisis right across the, the 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 charitable sector as well as obviously, you know, the the, the private sector is 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 having quite a profound effect. Um, so we've, we've said for years that we don't ask for money and that's been our, our brand position. We only ask how we can help. Um, but I think we'll be, we'll be working with Adam and Eve to have some asking for money campaigns pretty yeah. soon. And w- without wanting to be too brazen on your podcast, eight pounds can fund one potentially life-saving call. You know, kind of for most of us working in the creative industries, that's two slightly overpriced lattes, right? You know, kind of that's hopefully something that we can all give and it will make a huge, huge difference. So yeah, go on to the calmzone.net um, and, and donate if you can. All right. Well, I want to say thank you very much uh, to Simon Gunning from Calm and Will Grundy from Adam and Eve DDB. And thanks uh, so much for listening. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening to this week's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Aidan Lyons from Rethink Audio for helping us to put this together. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Campaign Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, check out our website, campaignlive.co.uk to stay up to date with everything that's going on in Adland. And if you're not yet a subscriber, visit campaignlive.co.uk slash membership for details about how you can get full access. I hope you'll join us next time. On behalf of the campaign team, goodbye.